Cassette Podcast Network. You are listening to Pack and Recovery, a podcast made by people in recovery for people in recovery. Nevada's Recovery and Prevention, or NRAP for short, is a collegiate recovery community located on the campus of the University of Nevada, Reno. This podcast is designed to help students go from surviving to thriving by discussing resources located on the UNR campus, tips on sustaining recovery, success stories, and ways to support those in recovery. What does it take to be in recovery on a college campus? You're about to find out on Pack and Recovery. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Woo-hoo. Welcome back. Welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> you got to do it. I'm, I cannot do it very well. <laughs> it was an attempt. I'd call it an attempt. Wow. <laughs> no Tino shade. <laughs> A for effort. Oh. Wait, effort starts with an E. Well, anyway. Welcome to Pack and Recovery, everyone. <laughs> My name is Ezra. I'm Ian. I'm Seth. And who do we have with us today? Hi, guys. My name's Morgan. I am with Cassat up here at the University of Nevada, Reno. Welcome. Welcome. Yay. We're so, so happy to have you. What do you do for Cassat, Morgan? So I work on the State Opioid Response Project, and... In my job, I do a lot of the overdose education and aloxone distribution for the state, as well as work with a lot of the law enforcement to help establish some diversion programs. Oh, that's awesome. Nice. So we've brought you here today to talk to you a little bit about the opioid crisis. So starting that up, what is the opioid crisis? If you were to explain it to someone who just has zero access to news like 2016 <laughs> um, <laughs> have no idea so the opioid crisis to summarize is really the development of a pharmaceutical issue in our in the united states as well as worldwide and really where we started over prescribing for pain medications to our populations um, because we were prioritizing pain management and we over and unfortunately it was overlooked just how incredibly addictive these medications were. And so we were really kind of creating this toxic population where there were an, an inordinate a number of individuals who were really starting to struggle with no longer the pain, but trying to chase the medication itself. And since then, it's really evolved into, well, a drug, a street illicit drug problem. So people are really having their access cut off on getting the prescription medications. And so they're going to the streets. And unfortunately, when we look at Nevada in particular, but it is national, the influx of fentanyl coming in to the United States that's being kind of combined with everything else that we can get in off the street. Yeah, and fentanyl is compared to like 
opiates that we know of, like Oxycontin and whatever that was originally prescribed, fentanyl is quite a bit stronger, right? It's about 100 times stronger. So when we look at it, if you take the if you take a dime out and you cover the face of the dime with a powder, that's enough to be toxic and lethal. So it's very, very small amount. And unfortunately, it's also the consistency of powdered sugar. So it gets everywhere. Mm. But we're seeing a real big influx in it because it's super cheap. It's really easy to get your hands on. And a lot of people are cutting all of their other substances with it. So either you're getting um, compressed pills that are now pure fentanyl and not what they're marketed to be off the street, or you're getting a lot of other substances being cut with fentanyl. So we're seeing people who aren't even trying to use opiates who are now overdosing due to fentanyl in their other supply. It would be kind of a bummer if somebody was like eating a powdered donut. Turns out it was fentanyl. <laughs> that would be awkward. <laughs> and yeah, I really sure have some questions as to where you got the donut. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the saddest part is, is we're seeing it mixed in with things like uh, marijuana that people are getting off the street. So we've even had some incidences where middle schoolers were overdosing on fentanyl at school because they were using marijuana. That's awful. And that's especially terrible. because it's like, Marijuana doesn't have those incredibly harmful effects that opioids do. And also, like, people who choose to use marijuana are very different. Or it's a very different choice to use marijuana than it is to use an opiate. That's um, why, yeah, that's kind of why this is such a strange problem that we have. Because, you know, how do you gauge who's at risk? Because at this point, it's anybody who's touching any substance that's now at right. risk. And apparently powdered donuts. <laughs> I have a follow-up question with it. So here on campus, do you know how it's affecting our students? Well, so we always look at Reno's really, it's a college town. And I think people often forget that, just how much of a college town this really is. Mm -hmm. So anything that's going to be affecting our community is going to affect our campus because our campus lives in the community, right? Um, even when you look at where our students are actually residing, most of them are not on campus. They're off in off-campus locations. And that's where the highest risk really is for college students in particular is those off-campus residences because who's, you know, who's, where's the oversight? Like what, who's kind of monitoring what's going on there? And unfortunately, that's, you know, kind of the, the sticky situation that we find ourselves in a lot of the times. Yeah, I mean, it is really difficult when something is so stigmatized, but not only that, um, when somebody might be using something that wouldn't necessarily have very much any risk associated with it, and then all of a sudden, you know, there's this humongous risk associated with it, and nobody's around, and nobody might have the tools or the training to deal with that in an effective way, or the person might be using alone. Um, yeah, like something like marijuana, which is crazy. For me to hear, you know, as somebody who used to do that, um, I remember my weed got laced with something one time and it was a terrible experience. And I can only imagine if it was fentanyl and then I started overdosing, you know, I don't know what the repercussions would have of that would have been. I don't know if I would have gotten help, you know. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, it's kind of, it's weird. And when we look at college students, you know, college students land in the highest risk age-wise for, you know, questionable behaviors. 
And so, <laughs> yep. you know, anything 18 to 24, those are individuals who, you know, are going to take the most risk. They're going to try to go out and experience life to the full extent. And when we look at it, we have research that shows up to 50% of students have been offered, you know, a prescription medication that's not their own, you know, by their sophomore year. And so when we look at that, we can see, you know, how easy it is to be exposed to something like this. Um, and we're being exposed by our peers, by our friends, all of those individuals who really, you know, we trust implicitly, we want to belong to. And so it's really easy to kind of get exposed to something that you're not testing. You don't know what's really in it, but you're being told that it's something completely different, like Adderall. Mm. Mm. Yeah, Absolutely. totally. And I mean, I growing up where I grew up, I knew a lot of people in middle school you know, who are doing uh, prescribed drugs that weren't their own or even just abusing the drugs that they were prescribed. I mean, 11-year-old kids on Adderall is not necessarily the best way to solve behavior issues, especially, you know, they don't need to be numbed out. You know, they need to have that experience. But um, setting up the stage of using a pill in any form that is so widely accepted sets the stage for unfortunately opioid use later on um could you comment on that like prescribing drugs at, at a young age and how that affects the opioid crisis uh, sure so opiates are really interesting in the fact that unlike other substances almost everybody in the population is going to be exposed at one point in time right whether it's through a dental procedure you had a tooth pulled you had a broken bone anything like that, almost any, everybody is going to be prescribed an opiate at some point, which on the surface isn't a bad thing. It serves a purpose. It works. The problem is, though, is that it can take as short as three days to start developing a tolerance to that medication, which really increases the risk that somebody is going to start using more to get that same effect and fall into this trap very, very quickly without even becoming aware of it. And so with the younger you are, as those chemicals in your brain are really still developing, especially that pleasure response, uh, you can see how quickly the brain actually stops producing things like dopamine when you have something else producing it for it. So in essence, our brains are pretty lazy mm -hmm. and they're going <laughs> to do the bare minimum that they actually have to do. So if you have another substance that's going to do it for it, it's it'll back off and be more than happy to let that happen. Totally. And so now all of a sudden, the younger you are, as your brain's, you know, hasn't gotten set in its ways yet up until about age 26. It's those substances are so much more potent and powerful to have a long term effect on stopping your brain from producing those same chemicals later on. Mm. So. People are going to be functioning with lower dopamine levels, which places them at higher risk for some mental health issues. Um, and, you know, having those addiction components already there because you've already developed a dependence. It's very, very tricky. And it, like I said, it falls into that same age group that's the highest risk because you want to live life. And what's going to stop you from doing that? And your brain is still developing at that time. Totally. Well, so we've talked a lot about, you know, what are the problems and how they, how they exist and how they're becoming worse. Um, 
what are what is a way something somebody could do something about somebody who's overdosing? Uh, so there's two things. So there's things you can do for somebody that you are concerned about to begin with. And then there's things to do for a person who's in that state of overdose in the moment, right? So um, really looking at when somebody's in that moment, you're going to be looking for pretty key pieces in terms of what's the respiratory system doing? Um, mm. You know, are, are they breathing? Are they conscious? What, you know, what state are they in? And then at that point, we do have over the we do have medication that is available to everybody in the population at no cost called naloxone or narcan depending on what you're getting and that has the ability to reverse that immediate effect now that only reverses the immediate effect they still have the they're still going to have that same struggle they can still they still have opiates in their system but it will buy time for other assistance to come on the way um, so you have that, but you also have, if there's individuals that you're worried about in general, we're not expecting everybody to have a come to Jesus moment the second they have an overdose, right? Right. Like, you don't know you were almost dead. And let's be <laughs> mm -hmm. completely yeah. honest. All you know is you felt amazing. You fell asleep. Now and you, they ruined their... Yeah. Now yeah. you feel like crap and you're pretty sure it's that person's fault, right? Like that's <laughs> yeah. as far as you've, you've really have been able to process. So that's not going to be a come to Jesus moment, but that doesn't mean we can't put some protective factors around them, right? And that's really connecting people to peers, individuals who've, had, who've walked that same walk, who've had that same struggle, um, just to start building up that relationship. It also means making sure that we're meeting other immediate needs, right? Do they have a safe place to stay? Do they have food that they need? Do they have, you know, all of those things that generally stress us out and create, you know, more of an issue in general. So Putting those things in place really opens the door for people to start receiving help down the road. Are there places in Nevada that uh, have been like put in place to like help with that? Definitely. We have peer recovery sports specialists all throughout the state. Um, that's one of the things that Nevada's really been working on is trying to make sure that we have that certification in place so that people are well trained and how to assist other people, but they also carry that own personal experience as they're going through. Um, so even in like this area, we have uh, foundations for recovery in particular, but we also have peers that are attached all over the place, like with Life Change Center, Queer Quest Counseling. We even have them on campus, but these are all just individuals who really have had the opportunity um, to be that voice of reason. And so they're easy to they're easy to reach out to. If you have those moments, you can call the crisis call center, you can call 211, and they can get you in touch with those individuals in particular. We also have a peer recovery warm line that is through both Track B and Foundations for Recovery, so people can make that phone call anytime. Mm. Now, uh, are these all places that distribute Narcan to people, or do you where do you have to go to get Narcan if you want to be like a uh, somebody who's prepared in case they run across someone who's having an overdose. We always recommend that everybody have Narcan. Consider it aspirin in your medicine cabinet. So we have partnered with a lot of different agencies throughout the state. One of the quickest ways to really find that is go to the nvopioidresponse.org website, and that has your naloxone finder with all of the agencies that have, you know, promised and committed to distributing naloxone, no questions asked, and at no cost to the 
different community partners. But one of our biggest partners up here is Join Together Northern Nevada, aka JTNN. We also have Hopes. We have, again, the Life Change Center, Quest Counseling. Um, even Washoe County Sheriff's Department is partnering with us to give out naloxone, no questions asked, and do leave behind programs. And we're now talking with REMSA to make sure that they also have that ability too. So we really want to make sure that this is widespread, that you know, there's no wrong door that, to go into and be able to ask for this. Totally. Um, you know, there are people out there who have issues with this because they say, you know, well, why should we save somebody? It was their choice to, you know, use drugs. Um, but as we've already talked about, you know, sometimes it's not their choice. You know, they got, um, it's the equivalent to being, having your drink spiked at a bar, you know, and sometimes maybe that's the way it happens. Um, what would you say to those people, um, even for people who, quote, I'm using air quotes, chose uh, to start using opiates? What would you say to those people who say, well, those people should not have access to Narcan? The stigma is real. I will definitely say that. And that's one of the unfortunate pieces of this, because when we start talking about stigma, we lose sight as to who's really the one that's struggling, right? Um, because a lot of these individuals, they didn't ask for it. They didn't start intentionally misusing a substance. They were legitimately prescribed a pain medication that their brain has become to attach to that they can no longer process that or make those decisions as to whether or not this is something that they can stop on their own or not. Most people don't start on their own. Why do we expect them to stop on their own? Um, so when we look at that, that's a big piece of it. And so having that compassion and understanding that all of these people are still, you know, other somebody's child, somebody's sibling, somebody's best friend, they all still carry that weight. And when we ignore that, not only do we make our communities themselves sicker, but we're placing ourselves at greater risk for long-term problems. Because when we look at what the cost is of individuals having to go to the hospital on a regular basis, that's coming back on county taxes, right? So when we look at what the cost of it is on the federal level, it's over $85 billion a year that we're paying for individuals to get go to the hospitals, to go in through law enforcement, to have all of these other touch points. That's costing our community a lot of money that can go into other areas. So even if you're one of those individuals who says they, you know, they deserve what they deserve, you're still creating a sicker community in general when you treat it that way. Mm. Well spoken, yeah. Yeah, I have a good friend who always tells me that like people who deal with with suffering in this way, it, if, you, if you look at it as like an attempt at a noble action, it's much easier to find compassion for those people because sometimes it can be hard, especially, I mean, I have friends that are still addicted and to opiates and it's like sometimes so hard to be like, you know, I, can, I still love you, but like, ah, it's so frustrating, you know? It's hard because you're talking to the drug, you're not talking to the person half the time when they're in the midst of their addiction. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's a very different kind of relationship. And I, the closer you are to a person, sometimes the harder it is to have that compassion than being a few steps back. Uh, so I completely understand that. I've been in treatment for years and have seen that process. And you never know what's going to come out of somebody's mouth when you're, t again, you're talking to the drug, not to the person. Right. And so really being able to buy that time to 
allow somebody to change is a huge gift that you're giving both yourself and to that person as well. You know, speaking of, of that time to change, you know, another controversial topic is harm reduction centers, you know, um, and for me as a recovering addict, I can see the usefulness as a, like a safe place, um, where you can do your drugs without the worry about all the other external things that go along with using drugs. You know, the, the risk of infection, if you use drugs intravenously or the multitude of other things. Um, and I just want to point out that in harm reduction centers, there's never been a death from overdose. Whereas in the rest of the U S I'm not really sure what the statistics are, but it's not it's all, it is not pretty. <laughs> a lot of people die from overdose. Have you seen any push towards harm reduction centers in Nevada? And if not, you know, what are some steps that maybe us as a community could do to move the needle more in that direction? So there is some talk about it. Um, it was brought up in the last legislative session in regards to really establishing some of these safe use locations. Um, they are, we'll say it's a slow process on getting people on board, right? So we do have a coalition. Um, we have several community members who are really champion championing this for our state really because we've seen huge successes in places like Canada in regards to how to implement this appropriately. Right. Um, so really when we look at that with, with the new legislation that Brown, that's going to be coming out next year, that's really when we need to see those community champions again, really kind of going back and talking to their legislators and really saying that this is something that they find value in we're not saying that it's not possible, but right now, legislatively, it's, it can't be supported in our state. So there has to be some pretty big changes. And how um, can people get involved? Is there like public comment that you can make? There is. During legislative session, there is public comment. Um, as soon as some of these passages move forward, we can, we can let, let people know exactly what you know, what titles they are so that they can look for them during the legislative session so that they can pop in for those public comments. These will probably be, go be going to different committees, um, which is really an opportunity for people to talk to the, the legislators that are on those committees themselves. And so that'll be pretty important. So I don't know if this is going to be an AB, you know, 69 kind of advancement or if this is going to be something completely different. But as soon as we have those titles and everything, we can definitely share that with the public. That's awesome. And every um, all of the information that you've been told today will be in the bio. So if you just scroll down, you'll be able to see um, naloxone finders and we'll put information about legislation if we have it at the time. Totally. You know, I think one of the biggest misperceptions about opioid use and opioid overdose is, is that it only affects a small community, right? Um, but much in the same way that car crashes don't affect just the small community, opioid crisis, the opioid crisis does not either. Um, how would you go about impressing upon someone the enormity of the scale of the devastating impact of this crisis in relation to something they can understand, like a car crash? Well, 
So if you want to look at just within the state of Nevada, I mean, okay, let's let's be honest. 2020 kind of threw all of our lives into chaos. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Understatement of the year. <laughs> like, yeah. We'll just throw that out. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But when we look at what we had in 2019, we were seeing a pretty steady decline in the number of individuals who are dying of opioid-related overdose deaths, right? Um, we were down to 304. No, let's get back. We were down to 374 individuals in 2019. That was a huge, huge shift for us, which was fabulous. 2020, we had over 541 deaths. Wow, so it almost doubled. So that was a 42% increase, which is tragic because it really undermines a lot of things that, you know, were really, that really were going well in our state in terms of that. But if you want to compare that to car-related, you know, deaths, we're looking at 314 individuals who passed away in car-related deaths in 2020. That's a huge discrepancy. Wow. Opioids affect way more people than that. And when we look at that, but we're also looking at, again, how many people are going to the hospital on a regular basis? Because the deaths are kind of the last stage, right? You're really hoping that people don't go quite that far. Yeah. So we're looking at, you know, poisonings or anything else. Those individuals are taking up so much of our hospital time and they're taking up so much of our, you know, space in our in with law enforcement, in our jail systems, our criminal justice systems. And we're really how many people are now being penalized on top of penalized because they're struggling. And when we see that it affects our economy because people aren't out in the workforce. They can't provide those taxes. They can't participate with their families. Individuals are ending up in, you know, having to take up foster care issues, you know, ha- losing child rights. All of those things are really taxing the communities themselves because we don't have the treatment programs in place to support. And s- then you're looking at generational issues because what happens when a child is born into a home where there's substance use on a regular basis, Right. What's the trajectory of life for that individual? What's the trauma that they're experiencing? So what, you know, how much does that impact people as they're moving forward? So we're not looking at this as one individual who struggles. We're looking at this as every touch point that individual has, whether that, again, is with law enforcement and criminal justice, whether that's with medical systems, whether that's with, you know, um, mental health systems, anything like that, that it, it's a spider web. It just keeps you know, getting bigger and bigger and bigger as you're looking at just how one person can affect a community. It's kind of like um, how COVID doesn't just affect the people that get COVID, right? Um, It's important to look at the whole picture that one person is not on an island. They are part of a community. And all of those reasons that you listed out are great examples of how it really does affect everybody. You know, there's very few people, if any, I ever meet that don't know somebody affected in some way by the opioid crisis. And there's this kind of mass trauma that exists, but we don't want to talk about it because it's controversial or, or whatever. But the fact is people are dying. And that's awful. And I think people also tend to forget their people. They write yeah. them off. Absolutely. So, yeah. Well, I mean, there's similar problems with perception when it comes to things like welfare. Um, Like even 
there's studies that show that even people on welfare view people who are on welfare as bad people, you know, because they think that they're other. And it's important to remember that we are all just people at the end of the day. Yeah, everybody suffers. And every, anybody could end up in this position. You know, you might break your arm one day and get prescribed opiates as a relief from the pain. And then three days later, you know, you're hooked on it. And some people have the privilege monetarily and socially to be able to deal with that in a, in a way that is more effective and healthier. And other people don't. And so that's another problem where there's this huge socioeconomic disparity between who gets help and who doesn't who has access to the resources and who doesn't. And <clears throat> by using something like harm reduction centers, um, it does create a more equitable way for everybody to get the same access. Yeah, you know, because some rich person in uh, LA using <laughs> cocaine <laughs> uh, is not, like they're not fundamentally different than an African-American fellow on the street smoking crack. I mean, it's the same drug, but the perception is completely different. And the, the resources that that person has are vastly different. And I think that's unfortunate. You know, at the end of the day, we are all just people. And it'd be great if people could just get resources, <laughs> the help that they need. Agreed. Uh, and I think that's one of the hardest components to that is really, again, finding those champions who are willing to step up and say, you know, let's, let's do this. Let's provide this. Let's make sure that these places are easily accessible. Um, and really having, again, physicians on board who are willing, A, to talk about it with their clients, but also, you know, be able to provide things like medication-assisted treatment um, and feel and confident to do that rather than, you know, sweeping it under the rug and letting it be somebody else's problem. And I think that's really, again, a big point is that it's not somebody else's problem. It really is all of ours. Mm, so yeah. choose to be a champion. Champion. <laughs> well, awesome. It is about lunchtime, you know. <laughs> I think it's time to uh, wrap this up. And <laughs> <It's so lame>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, I mean, maybe we get a wrap at Create, you know, wrap it up. Okay, thank you for joining us today. <laughs> thank Just you so much for coming and speaking with us today. Morgan, it was we really fantastic. appreciate it. Well, join us for part two, where we're going to dive into this even further. Um, and it's going to be great. Yeah, thank yeah. you for letting me take your time. Oh, Absolutely. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to Pack and Recovery. If this is your first time listening, or you don't want to miss out on more episodes... Be sure to subscribe to us on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, forward slash Nevada Rap, or Instagram, at NRAP underscore UNR. Or come say hi at the William Raggio Building, room 1001. Cassette Podcast Network. This podcast has been brought to you by the Cassatt Podcast Network, located within the Center for the Application of Substance Abuse Technologies at the University of Nevada, Reno. For more podcasts, information, and resources, visit cassatt.org.